Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 69 for Saturday, December 12th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I am Emperor Sabriel Maston. Oh no, Emperor, are you the mirror Sabriel? No, I'm the normal one. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of an episode of Red vs. Blue, the Machinima series, where there's this entity that's leaping around, inhabiting people, making them evil. And like when they jumps into one person, like he starts talking about kicking puppies and ah, 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 evil laughter and then jumps into one person. The guy says, huh, I don't feel any different (laughs) because he's just that naturally evil. So, I mean, really, is there that much Mm -hmm. of a divide between us and our mirror selves? No, uh, maybe I would love to find out. I already have the beard. I add in a scar or two and actually I have those too. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, I thought was a great observation this week. We finally got confirmation that in the Mirror Universe, they are the Prime Universe, and we are the Mirror Universe. Yeah, you know, I feel like we've heard that line before, to be honest. Now, that when you were just saying it now, I'm like, wait, did Georgia say that? Georgia say that in the past, too? I know it's certainly something you and I have discussed on this show. Yeah, uh, but, but backtracking just a little bit, we were talking about Terra Firma, part one. Right, right. And this is part one. When the episode titles originally came out, it just said Terra Firma, followed by Terra Firma. And I wasn't sure if it was a double header, kind of like they did with the animated episodes of Short Trek. But no, this was part one, which if you had looked at the episode titles more recently than I have, you would know and would not be surprised by, with part two to be followed next week. So we got the first half of the two-parter this week, Terra Firma part one. How did you feel? Just general feeling about this episode. What did you walk away from? Like... Your your mood or feeling towards this episode? I think I liked it. I mean, for one, I know some people just don't have any affinity or interest in the Mirror Universe. And I respect that. You know, it's totally divorced from the Prime Universe. It's sort of a cop-out, like, oh, things that are good or bad. It's just sort of an easy switch to flip. But I really dig it. I really like seeing the characters and the actors just go out of their comfort zone and be the complete opposite of themselves. And even Emperor Georgiou was disturbed by that a little bit this week, even though she was once so acclimated to it. So in some ways, I had a lot of fun with it. And some ways, it also captured some of the TOS era of, this is just absolutely bizarre, and there doesn't need to be a scientific explanation for it. And maybe there will eventually be one, but... I think overall, actually, this is one of the episodes that did live up to my expectations, although there are still, as you and I have discussed, a lot of plot threads that aren't advancing. They keep getting distracted by other things, and I want to see where is the other stuff going. It's so slow to progress. But that's a lot that I just said. What about you? you (laughs) That was... Uh, that didn't leave me up. Okay, I think that's what covers up for today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Did I did I did I uh, scoop you on everything? Every single thing. So, uh, yep. All right. Thanks for everyone. Thanks for coming to Transporter Lock oh. episode sixty nine. Nice. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, as simpatico as you and I are, Captain, I'm sure that you have something to contribute. <laughs> I, I asked you this because I was speaking with friend of the show, Charlene Smith. 
Uh, and she was not fond of the episode. Or at least was eh on it. And my feelings when I walked away with it was I really enjoyed this one too. Or, but enjoyed in a different sense. I got a bunch out of this because I enjoy the Mirror Universe a lot as well. Uh, Char does not. And a lot of people online are really down on the mirror universe. And I can see why. And it all kind of comes back to something like a Rom said in Deep Space Nine episode. I think it was the Emperor's New Cloak. He's He saw his, you know, in the prime, or in our universe, his wife is Lita. And he saw Mirror Lita. And it was just like the reaction that he got there was so off. Everything, everyone acts so weird. And Rom like yells out into the void, like, this doesn't make any sense. And... That's what a lot of the Star Trek fandom feels about towards the Mirror Universe. If you pick it apart, if you look at it any longer than one episode, maybe two, it doesn't make any sense um, how they got this, how they got far. Why a, a, why a ship would call, be called Discovery in the Mirror Universe? Uh, <laughs> unless it's, we're discovering new ways to torture our enemies. Uh, no, it doesn't make any sense, but I still just love that dichotomy of back and forth and how these people would be look if uh, their general sense is, you know how like in, uh, in, mo- in most people in the real world, we try to tone, we, 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 we think of something bad, we tamper it back. Uh, in the mirror universe, they think, oh shoot, I just had a good thought and they temper that back. Uh, I just love exploring the mirror universe and I enjoyed the story and I get to see a little bit more of the mirror universe culture and I think I'm going to have fun talking about that as we get going yeah that's a really interesting observation I hadn't thought about it that way that we have these impulses to do things that we would not normally do because we've learned to constrain and restrain ourselves and in the mirror universe they probably have the same impulses but to do other things like maybe they on some level want to be good but they know that that's a sign of weakness and they can't show that whereas here you know sometimes that's true as well but in general we want to be good and we try to enact those impulses that's really interesting that the difference between our universe and theirs could be so simple yet so fundamental and this entire different universe spawns as a result. Yeah, I, I wish I could take credit for... I've had that thought before, but I could never express it into words. And then I watched a little clip from Ready Room this week. And Emily Coots, one oh, actress who plays Detmer, uh, mentioned that, talking to uh, Sonequa about that. And they had that mm. thought. And like I, like I said, I've had these thoughts. And I couldn't word them much good. <laughs> uh, and so I would like to thank them for putting them down but so this episode we started in sickbay with glasses guy yeah who we learned from closed captioning is named kovich yeah uh, i mean I, I think glasses guy is much more mysterious but hey kovich works. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds kind of x-files to me he, like, right? he, maybe he's smoking guy's cousin i've never even seen x-files but i know smoking guy yeah uh so i feel like glasses guy just kind of fits pretty Pretty wow, words is hard uh, today for me, apparently. But uh, yeah, I like glasses guy a lot. But we found we found out today. Uh, this is something I was squeeing about online last week. We're here. They actually mentioned the Kelvin universe, not by name, uh, in the Prime universe. I got a kick out of that. 
Yeah, Glasses Guy said that Commander Yor was a time soldier who came not only forward in time, I think from 2374, but also from a different universe created by an incursion by a Romulan mining ship, which of course would be Nero's ship from when he went to the Black Hole created by the Romulan star collapsing, I believe. So I'm, I think it's interesting that they know that timeline exists and that that temporal incursion occurred. And yet, how does their timeline still exist? Like, normally when you go back and you change the past, the future changes too, and yet Prime Universe is still here. And Time travel has so many different rules and theorems and hypotheses that you can make anything the truth. Sure. And that's not something I necessarily need an explanation for, but clearly this is a federation that has survived temporal wars, whether or not those were the Cold Wars from Enterprise, I don't know. But they have more insight into temporal mechanics than we do, and more than any other series of Star Trek has experienced. I and so I'm sure they have an answer to it. Yeah, I could see where we have a fourth dimension. When you travel the fourth dimension, you see a lot more realities and you just know all these different timelines and stuff mm-hmm. or you can find them if you need them but that raises a question for me is there a difference between an alternate dimension and an alternate timeline because the prime universe and the kelvin universe are different timelines like they were exactly the same up until when nero went back into the past whereas the mirror universe as far as I know, is not the result of a temporal incursion. It was always different. And so if they're considering the Kelvin universe to be a, t- a different dimension in that Yor came here from there, just like Emperor George U did, then that would mean that Spock and Nero also went into a different dimension when they went into the past, and they should have been experiencing the same thing George U did. Oh, we don't know. I mean, George has been around for a while, so we don't know timey me. who knows, maybe Spock would have, uh, Prime Spock would have if he would have been around longer. Maybe he was off camera. Maybe uh, it's more about the drastic time jump that Giorgio did that helped. Because a time soldier guy was from the future, but also not, I don't know. Uh, timey me. I, think, I don't well, think they were interested in exploring that part. I mean, the amount of time was different. You're right. Commander Yord came about seven to 800 years into the future, whereas Spock only went about 100 years into the past. But once, Prime Spock, but once he was there, he lived there for like six years because he was there in the 2009 uh, J.J. Abrams movie. And he was there until he was acknowledged as having passed away in uh, Star Trek Beyond. So that yeah. six years in the past is a lot longer than Georgiou has so far spent in the future. Yeah. I mean, they, it's so open right now. They can answer. Sure. Temporal mechanics don't need to be consistent. <laughs> so I'm not necessarily trying to poke holes in things or expressing frustration at lack of continuity. I'm just saying, hey, here's something that retroactively we now realize we should have considered. That's all. But yeah. yeah so I, I we, find it interesting. Yeah, me too. That's all. So, yeah, uh, they're in sickbay, and once again, Sphere Data comes to the rescue. It's good for more than just movie night, as we find out. <laughs> I thought it was like a, I felt like there was a fourth wall comment, besides just like showing, uh, I mean, clearly the thing suggested to watch a movie, but, uh, and that's clearly what it was intended to be referencing, but also like, 
this just feels like so sci-fi and so like B movie of like we have a sentient computer from the future and the past and all timelines talking to us. It felt very I don't know, it just felt like fourth wall uh, a little bit to me. Maybe not intended, but <laughs> I I liked the observation that Discovery even without the sphere data has records that modern federation does not they imply that some databases were lost over the course of the last 900 years and i i hadn't considered that it seems reasonable to expect that there would be some amount of decay or attrition and especially with the burn a lot of starships probably had not uploaded their discoveries to a central database yet they had were still out on their 5 year missions and hadn't communicated back home yet but yeah, Discovery may know things that modern Federation does not. And that's yet another benefit that they bring to the team. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you bring a 900-year-old relic to the future, I suppose, that would happen even nowadays. Or at least could happen. I think it's just interesting. I like that idea, too. Okay, so so this whole premise of talking about Jojo brings to... She's got to get fixed real quick. But there's some stuff before that. And... Uh, before she goes to uh, Happy Fun Land, we get to see Saru kind of be like, eh, we don't need to fix Giorgio. Well, he was taking a very Vulcan ab- approach. It's not that he didn't care about Giorgio. He was just realizing that the Emerald Chain's on the move, and that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to say he wasn't caring. Just like, like, it's just like, it's, it's, he tries to take a stand here and says, no, we need to think of all of us. And then Vance, Admiral Vance, who I'm, um, Starting to like a little bit more. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I'll listen to you. Uh, uh, I'll listen. And yeah, go ahead and do this mission. Um, and I'm liking Vance more and more as time goes on. He feels more like a mentor or could be a mentor. But I also still can't help feeling something's going on. <laughs> well, as we've noted, Saru, now that he's in the future for the first time, has no authority figure to look to. His, this is his first time being captain. He's always been able to look up to Pike or Lorca or Georgiou, and now he's on his own. And so I'm glad that Vance is stepping in to fill that role. Saru made the call that he thought was the right one, and he lacked the experience to know that it was not the right one. And Vance, this is the most empathetic we've ever seen him. He's always criticizing Discovery, saying, this is not how we do things here. You need to obey our regulations. You go where I tell you to, when I tell you to. And this time he took Saru aside and said, hey, you know what? Your crew needs to respect you. And doing this mission is how you get there. So we can cover for you while you make this long-term investment in your cohesion and morale. And I, I really liked that. That was a side of Vance I don't think we've seen before. No, we hadn't. And I'm glad we get to see that. And now also, uh, something totally is going to go wrong with the Federation. Uh, or something's going to go right. wrong with this whole Emerald Chain military exercises. That's right. Because even though Discovery has a mushroom drive that lets them be anywhere at any time, they can't be in multiple places. And they might not get communication back from the Federation quickly enough to let them know that something's going down and they need to relocate. So they might get back to Federation HQ from this mission to Dandis 5 and find out oh, maybe we should have been somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, they were just setting that up. It's like, all right, Saru, Saru, I'll see you later. And then <laughs> we're just, we'll be fine while you're gone. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're setting this up. Well, if they go for the trope, they're, they're totally setting up for things that do not go fine. Mm-hmm. And we also had Book 
come along and confirm that these training exercises are happening, that they're not necessarily training exercises. What did you think of that brief scene? It was the only scene he was in this episode where he and Saru were having a walk and talk. Yeah, he's trying to do like a little like prove himself thing. And, and Saru, I think, rightly says, like, don't worry, your chance will come. Uh, and that's basically about all that scene was for. Uh, Book wants to be useful. He wants to stay around. And Saru's like, just just wait. You'll you'll have your moment. You'll have your, you know, your two minutes of plot to help us out. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> just wait. It's not this episode. This one's about Giorgio. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I had three thoughts about that. One is I don't think Saru was sufficiently receptive to what Book was offering. I think, in my opinion, Book has proven himself. Two, I don't think Book has a good elevator pitch. I think he has more to offer than he implied in that scene. And I, I think what he ultimately is going to do is join Starfleet. And he just needs to come out and say that, like, hey, I'm a believer in the Federation. How can I make that official? And third of all, if Book doesn't join the Federation, then I think he's going to die this season. I think that is going to be the moment where he proves oh. himself. I know. I don't want it either. But yeah, that's still about that book burn. I love the ship. <laughs> I would love to see. Ooh, that's true. I would love to see Burnham happy. I would love her to fall in love with a person who treats her well. And I mean that as a higher standard than just doesn't try to kill her. <laughs> and I would like to see, you know, I mean, standards are important. And I'd like to see a relationship that lasts longer than one season, something that isn't just bookended at the beginning and the end, and he's he came and now he's gone. So oh, okay. I would like to see him stick around, and the only way I can see that to happen is for him to join the Federation. And if he doesn't join the Federation, then I don't think he's going to stick around. And by Federation, I mean Starfleet. Yeah, I... I... If he does die, I would like you to remember that. Keep that bookend uh, joke around. Uh, <laughs> oh, I had a thought of that. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. His pitch wasn't... He didn't know how to pitch. I mean, he, last episode, he was still saying, I, I, or like, one eye. <laughs> um, that's right. He's not a pirate. Yeah, he's still getting used to this whole military thing, too. So yeah, I agree with you. His pitch needs work. He should have yeah. gotten to someone first. And like, how do I do this? And, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think right? it's more I like mean, a, yeah. Data can go to the holodeck and practice his jokes on an audience <laughs> that doesn't get jokes, but 900 years in the future, imagine what the holodecks 900 years in the future are like. We haven't seen that yet. Oh my god, now I want to. <laughs> uh probably look a lot oh. like they do now. Just less You know what? Yeah. You know what? I I want I don't know how this is going to work, but I want somebody to go into a holodeck and say, uh, computer, show me a list of the most popular holo novel programs. And the top one is going to be written by Tom Paris. <laughs> or, or um, uh, not Sam Spade. Uh, I kept thinking about the big goodbye earlier this week for some reason. Uh, well, yeah, because I, I can see that because it ties into the era of the Guardian of Forever, which we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, future holodeck. I wonder what differs from less future holodeck. One more thing I just want to briefly, since we're on a slight tangent about technology, I thought that having personal transporters would really be abused, but really all it's done is just make things simpler. We don't need to go to the transporter room. We don't have to worry about, oh, we're losing their cohesion in the pattern buffer. It's just, no, you know what? Let's just 
get to wherever you're going and be there. And I am pleasantly surprised at how it's worked out. It's the visual equivalent of just, you know, how TV shows, when people talk on the phone, they just hang up without saying goodbye. I mean, you can kind of do that here. It's the visual equivalent of that. You did good, son. And they're gone. Uh. <laughs> Although, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, George, you did that mid-sentence. Like, in the cafeteria, when Tilly comes over and says, you know, we can help you privately. It would be funny if it was just like, you know, we can help you pri- Where'd she go? <laughs> Like George, yeah. you just, just rolls her eyes and then hits the button, right? You know, like <laughs> I don't need to be here for this. Literally, boom. Anyway, okay, so that yeah. actually adds some weight to Linus last week or weeks ago when he was playing with it. Uh, you know, like he was showing like they used that to show kind of like the ridiculousness of it, where you could just appear anywhere. Uh, but you're uh, that was a good contrast because you're right; they could just be goofy with it. And they're choosing not to. They're trying. They're using it dramatically and in good ways. Yeah. Although we didn't really get to see anybody peel skin off Linus's face, and I'm disappointed by that. <laughs> no, we just peeled it off Saru. <laughs> but we did see Georgiou in the cafeteria. She and Tilly had a little moment. And wow, Georgiou, as many people do even in the Prime universe, when threatened with vulnerability or frailty, do not accept help well. No, I can definitely see it with her. Uh, we, you know, to her, it's a sign of weakness and all. But I mean, hell, it's people these days too. Uh, I mean, even in real life, people like, think it's a sign of weakness when it's not. Yep. And she just exacerbates that to like times a hundred. But I thought that scene was necessary because moments later, when Burnham and Georgiou are warping down to the planet or transporting we got to see a very different dynamic between Tilly and Georgiou. And that showed to me that Tilly is the stronger person and doesn't hold a grudge, which is hard. And also, maybe what we were seeing of Georgiou in the cafeteria wasn't her. It was just her lashing out at being frustrated at being weak, which was an important distinction because we saw some very transformative moments in Georgiou's character this week. Oh, yeah, she was totally lashing out. She's been doing that since she's getting more and more hurt. Uh, I mean, and Glasses Guy even mentions that, basically. Like, he was telling, before they found this uh, 5% chance of a cure, he was telling Cobra, like, you're better off just sedating her, or uh, Giorgio. Yep, throwing her in the break. Yeah, so yeah, this is totally Giorgio, like, fighting all her instincts to kill everything around her. And this moment where Saru and Tilly got to actually have a real... Goodbye to Giorgio. Uh, I thought was... I was so happy when I saw that. Yeah, I was very surprised that Giorgio accepted both kinds of affection. That Saru's words actually carried weight with her. And that Giorgio did not immediately eviscerate Tilly upon making physical contact. Because just a few weeks ago, you were saying... Wow, look at that scene in Book Ship where Georgiou let Burnham touch her. And that was just putting a hand on her shoulder. This week we went for a full-on embrace and Georgiou tentatively, eventually, hugged back. <laughs> yeah, it was very tentative. But yeah, she did it back. And like, your crew might survive you after all. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kindest thing she said to anybody. That's true. I believe it. <laughs> Shall we talk about what they found down on the planet? Uh, let's get let's do one more on the ship here because yeah. uh, there's one more scene and then like the rest of the episode is all down there. Uh, oh, yes, go for it. 
yeah, we well, first we show Adira is pushing themselves super hard, but they did figure out what is sending that distress signal. And it's a Kelpian ship that's been descending it for over 100 years. Yeah, as soon as they recognize the species of origin, they were like, get Captain Saru now. And Saru seemed really moved by this. I don't know if that was because he only just before coming to the future had his first experience of Kelpians as a spacefaring race. And so the leap to, wow, they have their own science vessels now and their own communications, maybe that touched him. Or maybe it was just a matter of, this is the first time he's seen a Kelpian in the future. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's actually all of it. Uh, And Saru gets really moved. Uh, I mean, Jones is so good at showing emotion through a face mask on an alien creature. Uh, and we get to see Saru, like, I don't know if it's pain or thoughtfulness or all of it, uh, but this his reaction to seeing another Kelpian was just a very powerful moment for me. I, don't know, I thought it was so well done. Yeah, I would describe his emotion, though, as more melancholy as opposed to relief. Like when Nan saw the other Barzans, she was happy in a way. I mean, she was smiling. She's like, this is the first time I've heard my language in so long. And she was so happy by that. And Saru, I'm not sure he was happy. No, uh, it was a different feeling. Or if, if it was happiness, it wasn't, as we describe happy, more, more, more like, please, that to see Kelpians in the way you just said there. Uh, just yeah. please that they're around. And then like we had to see this reaction twice, because when he found out the Kelpians joined the Federation, uh, he had a very similar reaction. Just like, Wow. <laughs> Although there are a lot of implications here, independent of, well, somewhat independent of Saru, to the fact that the distress signal is coming from a Kelpian ship. Because if they found something in that nebula that caused the burn, then in a roundabout way, everything that happened in season two involving the discovery and the sphere data is responsible for the burn. They made the Kelpians evolve to be a spacefaring race, which we saw Burnham go back in time and do with the Red Angel suit in the season finale they did all that in order to create the moment where they could send discovery into the future and get the sphere data out of control's hands so if a consequence of that was the kelpians going into that nebula and initiating the burn then that's probably not why it's called the burn but nonetheless this is kind of not burnham's fault but a direct result of her actions uh, I mean, it could have been anyone who went in there, too, if the Kelpians weren't around. I mean, it's it's hard to... I can totally see and agree with your point, uh, especially because it's a TV show and it's kind of how this thing works. <laughs> right. But uh, in the whole grand scheme of things, like, any number of things could have happened there. But if that is true, once again, things revolved around Michael. Yep. Uh, in a way that a lot of people are not going to be happy with. And it sounds like that Kelpian ship was, even though they were sending a Federation distress signal, it was not a Federation ship because they identified themselves as the KSF, which I imagine is like Kelpian science something as opposed to the USS. So it's possible that without Kelpians, they, they were not on a Starfleet mission to that nebula. Although, what is, the, what is a dilithium nursery? Uh, I think that's a new term for this. I've not yeah. heard if I've heard it before, I've totally forgotten before. 
So I've been watching Discovery for the last few weeks with closed captions on. And when Tilly said they were looking for a dilithium nursery in the Verubin Nebula, uh, dilithium nursery was in quotation marks. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess it's a new phrase. Must be. And your, your hypothesis on the Kelpian ship's name, when I saw her KSF Kies, I was like, you know what? Maybe it's just something we ever heard where only human or Starfleet ships in the Federation are called USS. Uh, or, you know, primarily Starfleet ones. Maybe like the Andorian ones or are the AS. I don't know. Oh, no, no, not ASS. But, uh, you know, like the <laughs> <laughs> but oh, you get the idea. Great. Like maybe other planets have their own designation. <laughs> I just had it's something I hadn't thought of before. Like maybe the Vulcans have their own call sign. It's, it's a Vulcan ship. Uh, well, isn't prim- you know, if the- they're not. If they're not in the Starfleet name. For USS, if I recall correctly, and I'm not looking at Memory Alpha at the moment, the U stands for the United Federation of Planets, and SS stands for Starship. So I would hope any vessel in the Federation uses USS. We have experienced non-Federation Vulcan science vessels having different prefixes, so they're definitely in use. Um, Now I am looking at Memory Alpha for KSF, and... It doesn't say anything we haven't already said. KSF was an identifying prefix used as part of the name for starships in the 31st century. An example of one such starship was the KSF Kayath. Nowhere in that definition that I just read does it say anything about Federation or Starfleet, which doesn't mean it's not part of that, but we can't definitively say. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting and leads to possibilities that have not really been explored. I guess that's the most we can say right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I do like the implication that even though they are in the Federation, if this is a non-Federation vessel, that means that the Kelpians have enough scientific curiosity and uh, ship power, if that's a word, to both be in the Federation and have their own science vessels. So that is definitely an evolution from where we last saw this species a thousand years ago. Absolutely. I would love to hear about that. Yay. And so, all right, down to the planet. Yeah, the next thing to talk about is the rest of the episode. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> Hold on. Did like the we went from Earth and we traveled thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or maybe even light years to this almost the center of the galaxy uh, to meet Carl. <laughs> <laughs> right on the edge of the Gamma Quadrant. Yep, Carl. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, what? You so, think it's a changeling? You think it's an Iconian? No, what? no, no. I was just thinking like they're on the. She said like edge of the gamma quadrant. I mean, yes. if if there wasn't enough clues already to what this person is or maybe a part of, that's another line I just hadn't thought of in the building evidence to what this person is. Okay, what else is near the Gamma Quadrant? Oh, I just meant, no, that's not the important word. The edge uh, is the important word there. Cause, uh, oh, oh, Yeah, because okay. <laughs> the city on the edge of forever. Maybe she said border, but whatever. Maybe I'm making stuff up. Whatever, we got to meet Carl, and I love Carl. <laughs> yeah, he came out of nowhere. 
literally. <laughs> yes, I mean that. I love the shot where the camera pans up to look at the ground, and when it pans back, suddenly there's a chair and a guy with a hat and a door that wasn't there before, and I thought that was really neat, and I have no idea what's going on. I don't know why the sphere data didn't give more information about wh- what they were going to find. They All the sphere data said was, beam down at these coordinates and walk over here. And we saw a very similar scene. You and I both noted it about Georgiou and Burnham, just like in season one, episode one, walking across a deserted planet or rather a desert planet. Now they're walking across a snowy planet. It was very similar shot uh, to the beginning of their relationship. As far as the viewer is concerned. Yeah. I really like that. They're kind of basically in a desert planet and now basically on a desert snow planet. I mean, it was so well right. done. It was so well done. Aces well, to you, you know, cinematographer. You know, I, this is probably old news to a lot of our listeners, but I just recently learned that there is such a temperate zone known as high desert. Like I spent the summer living in Arizona, which is desert. And then I moved to Bend, Oregon, which is high desert. And I didn't, I, I always thought that desert, no matter what adjective you put in front of it, just meant a barren landscape of sand. But Bend, Oregon is very lush. There's a lot of snow and it's still considered high desert. So when you call this a snow desert planet, you're kind of right in the same sense that Bend, Oregon is a desert. It's a kind of desert. It's yeah, that's very astute. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I mean, I don't know why. I, I mean, maybe because I live in North Dakota and it's basically in the summer or in the winter, it's this snow desert. So I was, uh, yeah, uh, but you're yeah. right. No, deserts in media are always shown as this bright, sunny, hot, disgusting place. But it's not the actual reality. Even in Arizona, it snows and gets cold. Uh, and that's not even what you're talking about. Uh, but, but just like media doesn't – we get. I mean, we talked about this in the season a bunch. Like media has a certain way of portraying things. And it does so this episode too with Michael, which I'm going to get into, uh, that we get so used to. And it just messes with it. And uh, I don't know where I'm going with that other than just – there's more to this world, and I think this world is beautiful. Yes. Yay! Uh, <laughs> so, this guy right. seems to be guarding a door, wouldn't you say? Yeah, he is certainly a guardian of sorts. <laughs> so, let's talk about that newspaper he's reading. The Star Dispatch is a newspaper we've seen on Star Trek before. Uh, in the original series... Yeah, in the original series on the city of the edge of forever. Uh, in one of the newspapers there, uh, just in that little scene where they're Kirk and Spock are back in time is the Star Dispatch. And huh. it was, you know, it wasn't a prominent set piece or anything like that. But then all of a sudden, here's Carl in the middle of nowhere, or on the edge of nowhere, uh, reading <laughs> the Star Dispatch with the exact same font, or the logo, and everything like that. I took some pictures for our show notes, which taking up tons of space. But it's the same paper. Yeah, uh, instead of the headline being that Edith Keeler died, this headline is Emperor Georgiou dies horribly painful death. Like, <laughs> kudos to whichever reporter wrote that headline. Oh, that editor was totally like taking away with this headline. <laughs> All right. We also see some headlines about good soup, and we see a crossword puzzle. But according to Memory Alpha, which apparently the editor there was much more detail-oriented than I was, this newspaper references the Takan Supernova from the Next Generation episode of The Last Outpost, the disappearance of the USS Janolan, 
which Scotty was on in the Next Generation episode, Relics. And it mentions the 21st Street mission from the TOS episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. Uh, plus, I got some cool hexadecimal uh, crossword puzzles and something that looks like a Vulcan. Uh, oh, yeah. Now that you mention it, I'm looking at that puzzle and the, it, it's, I mean, hexadecimal. Or not hexadecimal, hexagonal. 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 Yeah. Wow. It's almost like a, a strategy game. Interesting. Yeah, what a hell of a word puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Words have to, go, you have to form words going across left and right and up and down. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so everyone's like assuming this is. The Guardian of Forever, the Guardian that controlled the time portals that were used as a plot device for the city and the age of forever. And maybe it is. I I think uh, but Star Trek Least Discovery is rarely so blatant with their hints that it has to be. So this like has to be it. Because usually everyone's like, is that Ash Culver or Tyler? Is that this? Is that this? Is that what's going on? Uh, and here it's like front and center without saying it. This is a Guardian of Forever. Uh, from that original episode. Maybe, because this is a, the attack took place much further away than this episode, like spatially. So either he traveled a bunch, distance is inconsequential to him, uh, or maybe there's more Guardians. Uh, than just one. Yeah, we've never seen the Guardian anthropomorphized in this way. It had no physical embodiment separate from its portal. Its language was sparse. It didn't always respond when spoken to. It certainly didn't use jokes and metaphors as we know it. And even the planet it was on was not named. I just checked Memory Alpha, and it was a previously uncharted planet that the Enterprise went to after detecting time displacements. Some non-canonical sources later refer to it as the time planet or just the planet of the Guardian of Forever. Whereas this one is clearly Danis V. The sphere has data about it, so people have been there before, which I'm not sure was true of the Guardian, uh, except for whoever built it, if anybody did build it. So this, this is not an argument against it being a Guardian, but it's a Guardian unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, I think even the Star Trek card game had the planet as just an infinite symbol. An infinite symbol. Uh, No name. Um, So yeah, if it's the Guardian, cool. We get Carl. (laughs) If it's a Guardian, um, I was... I was joking with Shar again. I said, uh, what if if there's multiple Guardians? And this one is... um, Oh... Balls. I just scrolled away with it because we lost the time. Man, it was very clever and very funny, but uh, I'm not going to waste time. <laughs> Wait, wh- where was this? Uh, no, it was a conversation with Char, and I pasted the picture in the notes, but I removed it because I didn't need it anymore. And then, of course... Um... Oh, well, it's, it's in the reversion vision history. Oh, oh, hey, but I also got it. The, uh, so I was talking to Char, and I was calling him the guardian of... What could have been. What could have been, yes. The Guardian of what could have been. And then we had this whole scene played out in our chat where it's like, Michael's like, the Guardian of what could have been? He's like, no, the Guardian of what could have been. Gotta say it faster. Uh, (laughs) 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 Because that feels like it was very Carl. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So the point is, maybe there's multiple Guardians. That's a good 
theory. I don't know what would distinguish them. Like you could say one is the guardian of time, the other is the guardian of dimensions, but we see Georgiou transfer across both. She goes back in time to her own dimension, to her point of origin, in other words. See, I think it's a pocket universe that is separate from everything else. I agree. I agree that what happens in there is not going to affect what happens outside the portal. It will affect anybody or anything that comes out of the portal. But you're right. This is some sort of a a, a fantasy, a pocket dimension, a delusion, a holodeck. It could be any number of things, but I don't think it's what we would call real. Yeah. Um, well, he even mentions, like, your lovely bracelet will remain safely in the green, but there are other ways to die. Uh, so I almost like time had paused or something in there for her to experience all this fourth dimension stuff. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And what about what is going on in there? What did you, I mean, this was a large chunk of the episode. We find her in the mirror universe. She is the empress. It's the first time we've seen the crew of the mirror discovery. Cause when prime discovery went into the mirror universe, Supposedly, they swapped places with Mirror Discovery, and Mirror Discovery was destroyed. So, this is the first time we've seen, like, Mirror Tilly and Mirror all these other characters. Mirror Rice. Reese? Reese. That's right. So, what do you think about Mirror Discovery? Uh. <laughs> That's no, not encouraging. No, I was just. I was more interested in Jojo and what trying to figure out what she was doing. I think the rest of the crew is fascinating to see all that. But it's, uh, I mean, we didn't get to explore much of the crew, even Captain Killy as much as we got to see uh, Jojo, Mira Michael, Oishikon, and Stamets. Oh, and Saru. Mira Saru. Uh, everyone else was kind of just a background player. And it was cool to, you know, see, like, hey, we're at a party. And, you know, in the... 2000s there was this college game or game where you held onto a buzzer that electrocuted you like who could do it and they had an agonizer version of that as a party game i saw Uh, that that was great (laughs) and we got to see arium uh i missed that was she in the 10 forward area yeah she was at the party there um we got to see yeah with uh no cybernetics like uh, and we got to see um so uh, how do we know it wasn't died um, yeah the, the the actor how do we know it wasn't Nilsson then? If it's Arium without prosthetics, Nilsson was also in the scene, which is what so I think they got. I think they got the actor from season two. Oh, okay, wow. But it's supposed to be her. I, I was a little confused on all that, to be a little honest. But they had both of them because they had Nilsson in there too. We got to see what's her face, that Lorca's security uh, person who died uh, in our universe to the uh, water bear. Yep, I remember her. And we got to see all these people still alive. And they brought him back for this episode. Well, that's kind of neat. But they didn't bring back Lorca. No, they kept name dropping him over and over and over again. Maybe they're saving him for part two as the, the big bad evil guy or something like that. Now, in the original timeline, I believe that Mirror Stamets was in on the treason, but eventually turned on the treasoners, uh, treasonous individuals, and helped out Georgiou because he went on to live and explore the mycelial network. Whereas in this pocket dimension, he tried to kill Georgiou, and she stopped him. And clearly that did not happen the first time, because if it had, then either A, he would have succeeded and killed her, and that's not what happened, or B, she would have killed him and 
the timeline would have progressed exactly as it did in this pocket dimension, which is also not what happened. So I, th I think there's more differences here than just George Yu. A lot of people are still thinking it's still a like going, she actually is there. I'm like, ah, I know. Because uh, no. things are so weird here. Yeah. Um, but uh, what really confuses me about part one here is how are the events here a cure? Yes. Good question. <laughs> uh, I, I, but, but I think maybe there's some hints in the things that Carl said before she goes in here. Because he was asked, where does the door lead? Where does it lead? And he, does, he says, it doesn't lead. It follows. And a moment later, he's like, the answer follows the question. It's dangerous if, the other, if it goes the other way. And I feel like there's something more about that, those sentences, and I can't figure out what it is. I think he was just being difficult. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's possible, but I mean, you know, omnipotent beings and their wordplay. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> or Star Trek omnipotent beings, anyway. Oh, uh, yes. I, I was not agreeing from my yeah. own experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've all had Q visit us, right? Right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, but just like, how is this secure and how does it end with Giorgio yelling over a stab person yelling San instead of Khan. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Like, we still haven't met that person in this pocket mirror time-displaced universe. And there seems to be some sort of a lesson for her to learn here. Something about grace or forgiveness because she didn't kill Burnham this time. But you're right. Whatever she learns is not going to change the fact that she is a being out of time and place. And her cells are desperately trying to return to one of their two points of origin. And its failure to do so is proving fatal. My so, I mean, you know, you we can all learn a lesson today about teamwork. But <laughs> you're still dead in the end. Yeah, so it's something about reliving or creating new mirror universe events I feel like it somehow is going to tie her, connect her, so she can live in the prime universe. Somehow, timey-wimey space <laughs> stuff that it basically creates a root for her connection. So she, maybe her kindness, quote-unquote, uh, to the people in this pocket mirror universe, which is getting, we can get all the adjectives in front of it uh, we want, uh, will somehow tie her so that she can be stable in the prime universe. It's the only thing I can think of. Well, we saw something like that in season two where Culber was killed, but some part of him, his essence, since Stamets was connected to the mycelial network when Culber was dead and Stamets found his body, that transferred his essence to the mycelial network where he was able to be extracted from and saved which was such a stretch in my opinion but you're right maybe somehow georgiou will tether herself to this pocket dimension and as long as that tether exists she'll be fine i i don't know yeah it's uh, yet again stringing us along without giving us much for answers uh mm. yet again we're nine episodes in we still don't know what's going on with Giorgio. i mean we know what's wrong but we don't know how it's going to connect everything and how is this going to connect to the burn if at all or if we're just using discovery time to explain some backstory when she gets her own show eventually which is valid i mean uh, i had this talk with my friend TJ recently where one of the reasons he doesn't read science fiction is because he finds the plot is often more focused on the technology than the narrative. And technology should be 
an instrument for the narrative, but in poorly written science fiction, which, as we know, does exist, sometimes it's just a matter of, hey, look at this cool tech we have. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that a lot of Star Trek holodeck episodes are about that. It doesn't really advance the characters. And that's more likely to be the case in older Star Trek, where you have these bottle episodes, where no matter what the character learns, at the beginning of next week, they're right back to who they were before. So technology has more opportunity to be an instrument to the narrative in a serial series like Discovery. So whatever Carl is doing, Georgiou's not going to be the same at the end, and that's going to impact all the episodes to come. So that is a valid tangent for the ship and the series to take, but you're right, it doesn't necessarily immediately solve the larger arc. You know, maybe... I said maybe Book is going to be the one who dies at the end of the series. Maybe it's Georgiou, which we know is not the case because, as you just said, she gets her own spinoff. But the Georgiou we knew last season would not sacrifice herself. I think the Georgiou of this season would. Yeah. Or or is building up to that point where she could. Right. You know, I just had this funny thought while we're talking here. I was like, what if we just like, just like this episode, just ended our discussion halfway through? Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, because, you know, like, no matter what we think about here, it's going to be incomplete because this is a part two, two part series. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm just trying to think like, wow, can we connect this to what I'm thinking of now? And like, there's no real connection because we cut off here. Thank you, Discovery, for putting us in a weird spot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, because we don't have the answers. And I feel like we're not really any closer to an answer, even though we just spend an hour just, uh, watching an episode looking for an answer. Right. Uh, so curse you, season three, start, discover you keep doing this to us. Um, you know, if it weren't for all the hints about, for example, Carl being a guardian, I like I, you, you and I have talked about how much data do you need to theorize? And if it weren't for those clues, I would have, no data. I would have no theories. Like Carl could be a Q. It could be a natural organism that exists on this planet. You're right. That discovery doesn't always give us what we need to know. Like there was no way we could have known that Burnham's mom was now a Romulan nun. It just, it just showed up. Like we knew that that was a plot thread that needed to be resolved. Cause like, where's her mom? But it just showed up. And I'm not saying that you need to foreshadow everything. I like some surprises. But yeah, like by the end of this episode, I know what questions need to be answered, but I don't know how they're going to answer. Like, as you said, who is San? We don't know unless you read the novel that the character first appeared in. How does Georgiou save herself? What is this 5% chance? How does this tie into the berm? And there's all this other stuff like the Kelpians and Adira and, and the Emerald chain and Osira and the, the song, the song that is the distress signal. Yeah. There's just so much going on here and you can't answer everything in every episode because then you'd have A, B, C, D and E plots. Yeah. And, and you know, like when I think about the like, D and D campaigns I've run where like, I try to put too many plot threads in and it just gets confusing. Like, I don't say I'm, I know, I, I am enjoying the season, but I feel like I need more than hints of a storyline that we might get. 
uh, that's one of my problems when I create the campaign. Sometimes I put too much in there that could be explored and doesn't get enough information on to make it interesting for the players. And I worry that maybe this could happen to others too, where just stringing along too much and without real answers or even hints of an answer, which is kind of a bummer when I think about it. When I'm watching the episode, I'm enjoying my time. But when I sit here to think about it, I'm like, come on, just a little bit more, guys, please. A little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like... <sighs> If they were to strip out everything else and focus on just Georgiou, maybe this could have been a one-parter, which I can't say confidently without having seen part two. But how much more needs to happen in the Mirror Universe? Although I I do got to say, this being the first time we've ever... Like, we saw Tilly dress up as Killy. This is the first time we've seen the actual Killy. We saw Burnham dress up as Mirror Burnham. This is the first time we've seen the actual Burnham. And I found... The real Killy, less intimidating than Tilly pretending to be Killy, but nothing could have prepared me for how awful Mirror Burnham is. <laughs> you know what? You- like when she said, like, oh, I've always been a fine appreciator of art or whatever. And George was like, yes, you have. And Burnham said, which is why I blinded them and cut off their hands. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is totally in character for the Mirror Universe. But even George was thrown by that because <laughs> she has gotten so acclimated to prime Burnham, who would never do such a thing or even think it, that even Giorgio was taken aback by like, oh my God, this is not the Burnham I've been coming to love these past year or two. Uh, regarding Tilly, yeah. everything we know about Captain Killy, the actual one, is hearsay and conjecture. And so like, I could totally see a world where she is kind of ruthless, but it's all about what people say about you versus who you actually are. Uh, and it fits very well here. <laughs> She's no, got a well, reputation that maybe yes. doesn't actually live up to it when you actually get to know her, but the reputation is strong, so that's what counts here in the Mirror Universe. You know, One thing we haven't seen a lot of in Discovery's Mirror episodes is prime individuals and meeting their mirror counterparts. There hasn't been a lot of doppelganger face-to-face. And that's partly because the Discovery mirror ship was destroyed along with all hands on deck, as we mentioned. So it's only in this pocket dimension that we can see them. But, like, I would love to see our Burnham and mirror Burnham come face-to-face and just be utterly appalled by each other. And I would love to see Georgiou in the same room as them. And like one of them saying, I could imagine either Burnham saying, how could you ever love that other Burnham? <laughs> yes. Oh, that would yeah. be neat to see. Yeah, but we won't see that, but it would be neat. Uh, some final thoughts here on this week's, because I, I feel like I'm going to have be, I feel like I, I'm going to have some unfinished thoughts since we don't have part two, but uh, I loved the Greek style kabuki theater show that Stamets put on to show off the Corona. Wait, was it Greek or was it kabuki? No, no, it's kind of like a blending. Okay. Is what I'm saying. Like a drama with the aerial dancing to show off his new ship. Uh, mm. I love that scene so much. And it ended I, in tra- tragedy. <laughs> yeah. I, there was some great cinematography there where the headdress that Giorgio was wearing had the sun powering the Sharon right behind it, framing or framed by her headdress. I loved Stamets' blood running down the stage, 
along with the drapery and curtains that were there. However, I found his poetry lacking, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, he's an engineer, maybe, uh, who just really has an affinity for rent. And so maybe <laughs> uh, he's still an amateur. But at one point, like, he even said that the emperor brought love to the universe. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That sentiment does not exist oh. in your universe. Oh, no. See, this is how we talk about our great leaders, though. Uh, they're just bringing wonderfulness to the universe by spreading the Terran evil. Uh, I mean, you talk up your emperor. Even Tilly, she was like, I would never, or Killy, but I would never betray you. You know, I would, of course, give you that information. And you could tell it's just the, the I'm sucking up until I have your job uh, <laughs> uh, sentiment. And even Giorgio, like, kind of rolls her eyes a little bit. Uh, it's like everyone is just sucking up to the boss. And that's what's going on here. Fair enough. I mean, this is ascension through assassination, so why not? Uh-huh. Uh, I also loved the dichotomy of... Because almost every single scene in the Mirror Universe was Giorgio's point of view. Like, you never saw anything happen that wasn't involved with her. So that's mm-hmm. why it's a pocket universe as well. But also, um, in the hallway, when Giorgio and Mira Michael are talking, we got uh, this up-close-and-personal first-person views and... Mike Mira Michael is like looking like this TV version or movie version of a jester that's laughing in your face with this mm. wide smile, her, her um extravagant like eyeshadow, like just right in your face doing this weird little back and forth, like he 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 ha ha ha. It's like there's some internal things going on in Giorgio that signifies that signifies that I thought was really well done. Yeah, and yet at the end, she was definitely not laughing when she talked about how I was king of that trash heap and you plucked me out and made me into your shadow. I thought that was awesome that context is for kings. Like, are you going to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? And you also noted Georgiou basically tried to kill both Burnhams in this episode, but she did it to varying degrees. Yeah, and so... In the Prime Universe, before all the scenes in Carl's little pocket, um, Philippa is in the uh, rec room, exercise room, gym, whatever it's on Discovery. We need to use this set again. Um, hmm. She's got a sword in hand. She's lashing out at Michael, throwing weapons at her, and she takes the sword and stops about an inch away from Michael's neck. Well, In the Mirror Universe, there's a moment where uh, Giorgio is set to execute Mirror Michael. And she takes the sword, and this time she sets it, rests it on her neck, even cutting into Michael a little bit. I know that that difference of how she was, I don't know, like kinder, lenient, more lenient, uh, whatever, to prime Michael versus how she reacted to Michael, uh, mirror Michael, I thought was so well done. And just to show how she feels towards both of them, she seems to like prime Michael more. I mean, if you're talking about the degree to which you don't kill somebody as a symbol of love, <laughs> that's, oh, a very, for that's a very Terran thing, yes. Yeah, for Giorgio, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, she held back. Is what She held back when it comes to Prime Michael. And she really struggled to hold back when it comes to Mirror Michael. Yes. Although she clearly didn't kill Michael the first time around in the, t- in the original Mirror Universe timeline, because when Prime... Burnham showed up in the mirror universe pretending to be her 
yeah, when Prime Burnham showed up in the Mirror Universe pretending to be her mirror self, Georgiou was not surprised, which she would have been had she decapitated her herself. So this is Georgiou being given the opportunity both to get closure from Burnham as to why did you betray me, which must not have happened the first time around, but also to save her, like to have that opportunity to bring her around. Like this is basically her daughter and she wants to close that gap, which, you know, sometimes people die and you don't get the opportunity to have those conversations you've been meaning to. And you don't realize how much a person means to you until they're gone. And Georgiou has that rare opportunity to revisit that relationship and maybe make it end differently, which is clearly something she wants to do, even without knowing if this is a pocket dimension and anything really matters in the end. Yeah. Um, so final thoughts from me. Carl mentioned you can still die here. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that could be important for next episode. Uh oh oh maybe I said that maybe Georgiou will sacrifice herself at the end of this season unlike she would last season maybe she will die to save Mirror Burnham and that will somehow tether her cure her or whatever yeah 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 good catch hmm. uh something is still going to happen with Federation and these military military maneuvers of the Emerald Chain uh and. That's what I've got for this one. Because, like we said, we're halfway through an episode. Yep. <laughs> and it's only the second of two two-parters this season. Because we still haven't seen That Hope Is You Part 2. Which is why I think Book might sacrifice himself. He is the hope. Maybe. That might be the, series, the season finale. Although, from the episode names they've released so far, it hasn't happened yet. And also, fun fact from Memory Alpha, this week's episode is one of 14... Star Trek episodes with Latin names. <laughs> oh, well, today I, like- I didn't. I, I I didn't thoroughly peruse the list of the other thirteen. I suspect most of them are from Discovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So I mean, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, we've been chatting for a while, and we have more to say next week when we see the conclusion of this episode. So until then, stay tuned to transporterlock.com. Hit us up on Twitter. We love the tweets. We love interacting with you, whether it's with our podcast account at Transporterlock or us as individual hosts. I'm GameBits. Sabriel is Sabriality. Links are all at transporterlock.com, where you can also sign up for our email newsletter. Until next time. Execute. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.